Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, despite all of my efforts, and welcome to another episode of the Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thanks loads for all your really kind words and constructive criticism about our first episode last week. Um, To make sure that people accept us as a credible political podcast, I've taken everything that you've all said about how to make this show better, and I've decided to treat your feedback like the Labour internal report into their 2015 election loss. By that, I mean I'm going to blame other people for anything that was rubbish, and I'm going to now insist that I spend far more time aiming this podcast at older Conservative voters. So, this week, how to use Workfare to employ local youths to build your mansion extension for free. Ha, that's not true at all. Uh, Instead, I've genuinely listened to all your thoughts, uh, which is impressive, as most of them were written down. Um, But hopefully, you will find this episode, episode two, much snappier and much less likely to break your car stereo. Really sorry, Donut 2022. If you do enjoy the podcast, please do spread the word and let others know that we exist. Also, if you could give us a nice rating on iTunes, that'd be dandy. Or if you don't enjoy the podcasts, why not still give them a good review and spread the word in order to lure your enemies into listening to them, wasting away their valuable lifetime? This week's headlines. After 10 years of investigation, the Home Office inquiry into the death of Alexander Litvinenko has stated that Putin probably approved the murder. With further investigation, they reckon they could point out that it was quite likely, but who really knows of the certainty of anything? Or possibly even, we don't want to offend anyone, especially Putin, but chances are he may or may not have done something real, real bad to that man, or not, maybe. Putin's spokesperson has already stated that this is just an attempt to continue turning the spinning wheel of Russian hysteria. Well, if you are going to send someone to the UK to ruin a perfectly good cup of tea, fingers will be pointed. There have been talks about placing sanctions on Russia, but then who would be around to buy London properties anymore? Am I right? Things that have happened. Top hack in more ways than one, Andy Coulson, is setting up his own PR agency. 
which, considering he managed to completely change his image in the eyes of the public from Prime Minister's spin doctor to phone-hacking moron in just a few short months, he's clearly got a knack for it. Politics! On Wednesday, MPs debated the Psychoactive Substance Bill, which is also known as the You're Gonna Have to Deal With This Horrific Reality Sober Bill. They decided that the popular drug amongst gay men, poppers, were not to be excluded from the policy, which is a shame as it means there's nothing we can do to stop politicians from being such uptight arseholes in the future. News! 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 MPs have voted to cut grants for poorest students, meaning instead they'll get higher loans that will be paid back once they earn over £21,000 a year. On one hand, this seems like awful discrimination against young people from struggling backgrounds who'd like to attain higher education but will now end up with an awful lot of debt. Martin Lewis from Money Saving Experts said that with increasing interest on student loans, many will also end up owing more than three grand than they were before. On the other hand, with wage growth at a low and youth unemployment still being two and a half times the average rate, it's just a great incentive to think, why bother trying to earn more than £21,000 and have your loan for free? Hooray! Economics is an area that I've always had low interest for. Ha! <laughs> see what I did there? Interest? Sorry. However, with much of the last UK election being based on the rhetoric that one party was responsible for a global crash, it's become quite clear that it would be pretty useful to understand at least a little bit about fiscal policy and financial happenings. Politicians themselves seem to get deficit and debt confused all the time, while telling us that the country is doing well but that's why we need to make more cuts to services. So, how are we meant to make sense of it all? In the last week, world stocks have plummeted, oil prices have fallen, and we are now in a bear market. And being completely unable to understand any of it, all I can think of is whether those bears would trade in fish or honey. So, this week, I contacted Professor of Economics at Birmingham University, Tony Yates, to see if he could explain things in layman's terms. And I don't mean the bank that crashed in 2008. So, lame. Sorry. So, if you assume that deflation is terrible for balloons, hedge funds are kickstarters for squirrels, and a gross domestic product is just another term for the contents of my fruit bowl, then have a listen. Once again, this was recorded on a Skype line, so every now and then, it sounds a bit like Tony is hiding in a cave. I'm pretty sure he wasn't, although he does know a lot about the housing market, so maybe he just understands something we don't. I wanted to ask you a lot of questions because I'll be perfectly honest, I have no idea about economics. The only thing I know about stocks is which ones work for which soups. So I was sort of hoping that you could explain a little bit about the week's goings on to me and the listeners of the podcast. And my first question for you is uh, this week, uh, the news headlines sounded quite scary. All the world's stocks, uh, they dived, was that the term that was used? And, and how worrying is that? Is that something we need to be scared about? Uh, it's a, a bit early to say. Um, right. But it, it, what, what is worrying is that we're not in a great place to respond to uh, a proper crisis, if that's what this turns into. Um, why not? Uh, well, one of our – we've got two main ways as um, macroeconomists – of advising our politicians and uh, policymakers about how to respond. One is to 
cut interest rates to get central banks to cut interest rates. And the other one is to get governments to um, increase spending relative to the tax take, i.e. increase borrowing. And right, and, and borrowing Keynes, seems in a kind to be... Keynesian ways to dig, uh, Keynes even used to say that it would be a good idea to dig holes and get people to fill them in again. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't quite, right. sh- quite share that, but there are plenty of um, things that um, public spending could do uh, while it was at the job of trying to boost demand to, um, to respond to a crisis like this. So those are the two, way, two ways we've got of um, tackling so the problem. Based, based on my them... limited understanding, are we already, because yep. interest rates aren't rising, that's been announced this week, uh, Mark Carney stated, didn't he, that interest rates aren't going to be rising for the foreseeable future. And then I, I believe it was announced today that Osborne's not going to hit the targets for borrowing. So we're going to be borrowing over anyway. So does that mean we're already tackling what? Uh, it means we're already doing. We're already um, doing quite a lot, responding to the old crisis. So interest rates can't really be cut very much more. Um, they're they're at point five percent now, and we sort of think of zero as the um, practical limit to interest rate cuts. And uh, fiscal policy um, could could be loosened quite a bit, but politically, that's pretty unlikely to happen because um you know both the uh governments in the us say and uh the uk have um haven't got much room for maneuver you know the tories have set their store by um being uh fiscally prudent so they they won't they won't be up for a big fiscal loosening right Um, so we're already uh, doing the things we yeah, could well, be doing, but and right. that means we couldn't do them anymore. <laughs> not much. We can do a bit, but uh, not a lot. I mean, there is this thing called asset purchases, which is what the Bank of England, or quantitative easing, which is what major central banks have been doing. But that's of much more uncertain effect. And also, some people take the view that that's already somewhat maxed out as well. So, it's not. I would say the stock market uh, falls are not yet... Um, near nearly a full-blown crisis but we there's really not much more much we could do about it if one were to um unfold right that's, which is so why it sounds worrying. very concerning yeah it does sound quite i mean because the term that was used this week and, and admittedly the, the comedian in me saw this term and saw it was bear market and in my head i thought imagine bears trading with each other which is quite funny but i presume that a bear market is actually not a good thing uh, to have uh, well, some you know some people um, discussing this say that maybe what's happening is uh, people are now taking more realistic views of the emerging market economies, and to the extent that the stocks that were trading on unrealistic views, then it's a good thing. Um, now, do they, you might some people call that you know a, a bubble, um, not necessarily bursting, but shrinking. Right. So, in that respect, the bear market might be better. Uh, if everyone else, if, if there are a few del- fewer deluded people out there, then that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, you that, think- would, that would be a benign view of uh, a benign view of what's going on. So, just to try and uh, get this through in my head, so I understand, if the bubble was to shrink, I presume that would be better in some areas. Like, uh, and my mind instantly goes to things like housing and areas yeah. where, I mean, for example, the oil prices dropping has been terrible in some ways but for me as a driver it's been brilliant lately yeah. <laughs> because i can well, fill up my car cheaper that's one of the perplexing things about this you know so oil prices have plunged from uh, something like 115 um dollars a barrel uh, over about 18 months now down to 20, 28 it was i think yesterday and this is an astonishing 
uh, cheapness in, bas- in the, the basic means of us all making a living and getting around. Um, not great yeah. if you're uh, worried about climate change, of course. Um, but of course, leaving leaving aside weighty matters like that, it makes everyone's life a lot cheaper. Why? So why why then is it? You know, why is it, why on earth is it a bad thing? Well. It, because people think that what's causing it is um, it's telling it's giving you a signal about how much activity in the big emerging market economies like Ch- particularly China but also India Brazil it's telling you uh, something about how much those economies are shrinking relative to what we previously thought uh, they would do and that's not great because they you know they buy they buy things from us and uh, they're going to be buying less of them um, so that's why people worry about the falling oil prices okay and i'm probably jumping from subject to subject here so i do apologize if it it's it's my head trying to make sense of things um but if they're if they're buying less from us but i assume it means that they're also are they selling less as well does it affect their kind of exports because i mean my other big the other big story this week or one of the big stories is how our steel industry is falling apart because we're buying all the cheap steel from china so yes. surely that helps china's economy but not ours uh, they'll be, selling, <laughs> they'll be selling more probably because their their exchange rates uh, will probably devalue. I mean, the Chinese um, currency has already devalued a bit, and the Chinese authorities are uh, spending large amounts of their foreign exchange reserves trying to prop up uh, the renminbi, um, as I think it's called at the moment. Right. And uh, you know, everyone's thinking that at some point that well, you know, that may well stop. Um, so they'll end up selling more to us, probably. And the same thing is happening in the other commodity countries. Uh, so, right, so actually it ends up being almost worse for our industry here because we'll rely on cheaper exports. In, uh, yeah, for, a, for a while, yeah. Yeah, there's a bit right. of controversy about how, exactly what, whether this is a good or a bad thing, but uh, certainly in the short run it you know the people in those industries will feel pain, and in the steel industry, of course. Uh, are. Sure. Yeah, it's very, it's very saddening seeing that, um, especially in cities like Port Talbot, where it's been the industry for so many years. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, I'm guessing, like, like you're saying, we don't have in this country really anything that we could do to deal with it. Should it go, uh, should it go horribly wrong? Um, Not much. I mean, well, we, I mean, we are, this... in some ways we're in a. We're in a slightly better. So what 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 this crisis hasn't done yet is it, it hasn't morphed into a general financial crisis. So you know when um, when uh, Layman's the uh, investment bank uh, went bust in two thousand and eight, there was an enormous freeze in all kinds of financial markets as everyone thought. Oh my God! You know who is who owes what to whom? I've no idea. Should I trade with this bank or not? I, you know, I can't tell from their accounts whether they're on the hook for this problem or not. And so no one was prepared to lend to anyone, and the, the price of all kinds of borrowing rocketed. Um, so that is not happening. And it, it, uh, although the macroeconomic instruments to make um, to respond to it are impeded, you know, as I was telling you earlier. Some aspects of the financial system are a bit better. So, you know, we have done some things. Not me personally. Um, I've done nothing. But uh, <laughs> totally. those the powers you can, that be. You can do better. <laughs> I've got faith. <laughs> the powers that be have, um, you know, tightened the regulations about how uh, freewheeling banks can be, about what they, who they lend to and how much security they take. Um, and the regulatory authorities have got more levers now. Uh, so... 
in some respects, you know, we um, we're in a position where it's less likely to morph into a financial crisis, and so we've got better tools to deal with the financial side of it if it does. Okay, because I mean that was my. I, I remember from the last crash when I uh, I knew even less about this kind of situation. I remember uh, all the news kind of saying that Iceland had dealt with it really well, and all these other countries, but that we hadn't been regulating it very well. But actually, you're saying that we have. There have been bank regulations that have been put in place that yeah, will help I mean, curb any the, kind of crisis in the future. Yeah, the glo- you know the sort of um, Western financial um, authorities have got together to pretty much agree a new uh, accord, a new Basel accord. They're all, they always seem to be agreed in Basel because that's where the Bank for International Settlements, which is like a, a central bank for central banks, is. Right. So they all get um, the, these agreements are named after that um, extremely boring town, which I've had the misfortune hey. to visit a few times. <laughs> uh, is that even like, where is Basel? Where is it in the it's world? It's in Switzerland. Right. It's, okay. not so, oh, right. it's not so bad. It's just not... Uh, you know, you wouldn't go there for a good time. Right, uh, sure. <laughs> That's exactly why they put a, the, the central bank there. I that's right, yeah. Nothing, no you, you wouldn't yeah. get drunk and press the wrong button and yeah. cause Most a crisis. The most exciting <laughs> thing in Basel is a paper on uh, systemic risk in, in shadow banking balance sheets. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's right, probably brilliant. good. I bet that's, uh, that's all uh, So there is a new yeah. Basel accord <laughs> shaping up, which, will, which involves tighter uh, regulations on bank uh, lending and um, yeah, and want, you know, a fair, various other bells and whistles, more more simple ways of monitoring and uh, uh, whether these regulations are being adhered to or not, and so they're less okay. susceptible to being gamed by the um, uh, the clever people in the, in the private sector. So another question, I've got a couple of other questions, and these all probably link up in some way, uh, but I am too stupid to understand how. So it's been announced today that George Osborne's going to miss the, the public borrowing forecast for the Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, yeah. Is that a bad thing? Because, um, I mean, if they're borrowing money, that means surely they can put it into infrastructure and things that then in the future will gain us more money. Or is it terrible? Yeah. Should they not be borrowing any more? Uh, well, my my feeling is that they should be. We should have a different mix of uh, fiscal policy and interest rate policy. I'm in danger of slipping into jargon there, but I'll try and say what I mean. The government okay. probably should yeah, be there's borrowing a lot of acronyms that I don't a fair understand. Amount, <laughs> a fair amount more and uh, spending more on infrastructure um, because the cost of borrowing is really low. So, you know, future generations, when they look around and see all our knackered bridges and knackered roads and knackered railways, they're going to say, why on earth, you know, didn't you invest when interest rates were really, really low uh, and sort this out? Um, and we should be doing a bit more of that. And as a, to compensate, probably monetary policy would be a bit tighter. So that wouldn't be a, a sort of, wouldn't be much different in terms of countering the recession, but it would be a different mix of policy. Um, sure, but as far as this recent announcement goes, what the, it probably me, is, means that the economy is a bit weaker than um, than it was thought when the OBR forecast was made, and therefore tax receipts are a bit weaker. So that's I haven't seen you know you're ahead you know keep saying how uh, less in touch with these things. You are than me, but you are ahead of me on this. So I have. <laughs> well, I, am, I am honoured to hear that. It's it's um, purely seeing the tweet about twenty minutes before we spoke, but that's uh, <laughs> that's only where I am. Um, so, because um, so this uh, is the thing that I, I find very confusing is a lot of the terminology we hear that you know uh, public borrowing is going over, and some would say that that was bad, and you saying it's actually would be a 
a decent thing. But at the same time, public borrowing is very different to public debt, isn't it? That's personal debt of people. Is that right? Well, it's the difference between a stock and a flow. So, you know, think about uh, making analogies with households are often really bad. But hey, just to distinguish a stock and a flow, you know, if I run... um, uh, if on a you know given month I spend uh, ten pounds more than uh, I earned, that's that's ten pounds of borrowing. But I might have already been doing that for you know ten years. In which case, you know that would be ten years times ten months times ten pounds of of debt that I had already built up. Built up. So the borrowing is the extra bit that you add to your the you know the years of bad behaviour in the past. Right. Okay. Um, so you know is it is is the news a good thing or bad thing well it, there's no there's been no change in uh, policy decisions about what the government wants to do about anything probably all that's happened is hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, The tax side has has changed relative to what they forecast, and that's just dependent on the amount of economic activity there is. They haven't changed the taxes between the two forecasts, probably, and they haven't changed actual spending plans. It's just that the economy is weaker, therefore companies are making less profits, people are earning less income, and uh, everyone is paying less taxes to the government. So in that sense, it's bad because it means the economy is in a, a worse state was projected and that sort of fits in with other um other indicators you know the economy was growing at a fair clip um in the early part of last year but has slowed steadily uh for the growth rate you know is substantially less this now we think than it was um right eight nine months ago we'll have a bit more from tony soon but i thought i'd be economical with his interview ha do you see what i did there sorry so First, the EU. EU. Either the sound of an angry Glaswegian shouting at you, or the European Union. Both of which make some people feel uneasy. The run-up to a referendum on whether the UK should stay part of the EU has started. 
with campaign parties launched across the board, like the pro-EU group, Britain Stronger in Europe, which sounds as though it was put into Google Translate and processed a few times before going back to English again for that real European feel. Then there's the Vote Leave campaign, which sounds like a pro-tree party, and Nigel Farage's Grassroots Out campaign, which would also be the perfect title for Wurzel Gummidge's hairdresser. All the parties will be chucking their reasons for or against staying in into the ring over the next year or so, hoping to persuade members of the public to go on weak slogans and fear tactics rather than actually research anything themselves. You might be adamantly against the EU, or very for it. Or, perhaps like me, realise that the whole situation has loads of pros and cons and you'd really love a campaign group to arise called Look, we'd like to stay part of this European romp but the things we don't like no one's talking about and can you please stop TTIP and other terrifying globalisation initiatives from coming through Mercy Baku Dankeschön. But I'm not sure that sort of title would catch on. Before a referendum date is set, David Cameron has insisted that he tries for reform first which is causing huge rifts in the Conservative Party, especially from those who think the EU puts the UK's sovereignty at risk. I mean, why should another governing body get in the way of the Conservatives' attempts to ruin the country? Am I right? There's been a lot of concern as to whether or not David Cameron will actually bring anything back from Europe, and it's not just because you can't get as much through duty-free as you used to. The Prime Minister is hoping to secure a deal for renegotiation of Britain's membership to the European Union at the EU summit next month. And there are several key areas he wants to address, including being able to opt out of an ever closer union and protection of the single market, both of which really make him sound like he has commitment issues. In November of last year, during his speech setting out the terms of reform, David Cameron, with his face like an upset balloon, announced that one of the big issues would be restricting the access of benefits for EU citizens. He claimed that almost half of migrants from the EU in the UK are on benefits, claiming over five grand per family and costing UK taxpayers at least £530 million. Now, these statistics have been jumped on by many of the newspapers and they've quickly persuaded many anti-EU campaigners that we need to leave the Union before this country becomes full to the brim of those Europeans sucking all the money away and giving it to their families across the pond to go and buy croissants with, or something. Interestingly, the government won't state exactly where they got these statistics from and the HMRC recently refused a Freedom of Information Act request for the data about the migrant benefits and tax statistics. Apparently, they said, the requested data would affect ongoing negotiations with the EU about access to benefits. Which is the sort of thing you might say if you've seen the data and you think it might just invalidate your entire point. What we do know is that of all benefit claimants in the UK, only 1.3% are EU migrants, which is a very, very tiny amount. On top of that, only 4% of the UK population are from other European countries, which is around 2.3 million people overall. And that's a very interesting number, especially if you consider that the amount of people that were born in the UK and now live in other parts of Europe is around 1 million people, or 2.2 million people if you count UK nationals. So that's 2.3 million European people living in the UK and 2.2 million UK people living in Europe. So if the UK left the EU and free movement to this country was cancelled, all that UK lot would have to come back and we'd be just as full as we were before. 
It seems funny that some anti-EU campaigners would actually prefer expats living here, who prefer sitting on the beach pointing and shouting at things rather than learning the language, instead of having hard-working multilingual European citizens. Well, I suppose the latter just don't uphold British values in the same way, eh? We'll be looking at a lot more key EU issues over the next few months on this podcast. And if you have any areas in particular that you'd like us to look into, let me know. I, for one, am desperate to know if the opposite of a Brexit is a Brentrance or a Bropening. Who knows? And now, more economics! Yay! Again, that sort of uh, contradictory terms or contradictory headlines I saw this week of it. The unemployment has has fallen, but at the same time, wage growth is now at an all-time low, so it doesn't feel like that feels like they're counteracting each other in some way (laughs) that's great that we're getting people into employment but if they're not earning very much that's not a great thing uh quite yeah and it's a bit of a puzzle you know no one would have no one would have thought that we could have driven unemployment down so low without sparking much healthier um increases in uh pounds people get paid and also in the real amount that they earn you know when you adjust for inflation so it's a real it's a real puzzle um are there any indications what what it might be? Because, I mean, I know there's some that were saying it's because of apprenticeships and workfare and things accounting as employment, which aren't really well paid <laughs> or paid at all. Um, but I'm guessing that can't just be it. There can't be... Well, there are, different, there are different explanations. And so some of them are about saying, well, this is this is really what is happening. And uh, therefore, what's causing it is it must, be, must reflect much weaker productivity. Um, right. So, you know, people are not able to produce as much then you need need more of them and you'll probably pay each one less um so you know the weakness of productivity and through the crisis and its failure to recover to you know a line drawn through you know the long history of um uk output say uh, is one of the headline features of the um financial crisis um you know is that is that a failure of government policy you know hard to say uh, or is it? Does it just mean that um, you know the productivity increases we saw before the crisis were a bit of an illusion and not sustainable? That's you know that's a, a fair argument too. Sure. Um, some people you know worry about whether or not we're comparing like with like when you're comparing wage increases. So there might be ch- shifts in the composition of um, employment towards more lower-paid people for right. one reason or another, and therefore maybe that if you're comparing apples with apples. Uh, then uh, wage increases would be a bit higher. Um, but sure. the, we don't really know the answer to any of this. It's interesting you, you saying this as well, just how many variables there are, because I think on a week-to-week basis, if you watch news headlines and or watch a bit of Prime Minister's Question Times or whatever, it feels very much like it's this party's fault or it's this government's fault or it's this, but it, it feels there's so many global factors. And, it, yeah. you know, like you're saying, that there's so much that's affected by what's gone before that it, it takes years to kind of work out what was wrong, I guess. Like how much... It sounds like we're only really fixing the problems of the last financial crisis now, <laughs> fully. Uh, yeah, we're not so, really there. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, yeah, from the point of view of the Bank of England, interest rate policy, they want to get back to a situation where interest rates are at a more normal level and not, not having to um, stimulate the economy. So what, you know, we don't, they don't really know what that level is now. It's probably not as high as it was before the crisis. But, you know, so their job is not nearly over. And also, they've got this big stock of assets that they bought um, 
which they want to sell at some point. So that you know their job won't be considered done until all of that's sorted. Uh, right. And you know the the government, as they've said, want to be getting back into running surpluses at some point to make room for the next splurge when we have another big recession and they have to start running deficits again. Right. So the you know, the job is not nearly done in terms of responding to and getting the economy back on an even keel. I've been reading uh, that the public debt at the moment, the personal, you know, as we mentioned before about uh, stock and flow, but actual personal debt is really high at the moment, isn't it? It's quite a high percentage over what it should be before uh, the level that causes people to panic. We're quite high above that in the UK at the moment, um, which is really concerning. I don't know. I mean, there are, people have different views about this. I tend to be a bit, a bit more relaxed about it. So it's, okay. we're certainly, uh, from that point of view, we're certainly in a reason, a much better position than we were at the start of the final cri- of the financial crisis, and part of the whether you know whether debt levels are worrying or not depends a lot on what people have spent it on, and most of the reason um, that it hasn't fallen by a lot more is the fact that our house prices have um, been so house price increases have been so uh, so large. Sure, so mortgages are incredibly high, and yeah, this debt is you know a lot about taking out mortgages. If it was about you know going on a massive binge uh, and just you know eating and drinking and going to parties, then that would be more worrying because there's nothing to um, there's nothing right. to back the borrowing. But it's most you know, I that, argue that, that people would be happier though if that was uh, if that's what they were doing. I think there would be a better kind of feeling around the country. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, <laughs> um, but the hangover could be worse afterwards. If you want to extend oh, the uh, analogy. So this is, I suppose, quite a big question, but I don't need a. I suppose it can only have a big answer, I suppose. But um, is, only, would I'll only ever the say EU... it depends. That's the, the only right. sensible answer you get from an economist is it depends. Okay, well, uh, well, let's say um, Europe is also very much in the news this week. Uh, would leaving the EU make a, a massive difference to our economy? I mean, it, it would affect an awful lot of businesses, <laughs> wouldn't it? Uh, it depends, as I said. Uh, so. It, well, it, it does depend. The main, the main, the main difficulty is we don't know what leaving amounts to. So, what? Um, no, I think we can be fairly confident that um, Cameron is not going to come back with much uh, by no. way of re- renegotiation of the whole uh, set of um, agreements and regulations and uh, treaty um, items that constitute the European Union. Maybe there'll be maybe there'll be a bit of a change, but it's not likely to move very much. So we know m- pretty much what what it staying in means, uh, but we don't know what staying out means. We, uh, you know, once we get out, uh, well, first of all, we've got to agree the terms on which we leave. You know, what are we? Sure. Do we have to pay anything? What what uh, agreements can we strike uh, with other uh, with the EU uh, once we leave? What um, what will our trade arrangements with other trading blocs like the US or emerging markets? What uh, sure. what, what we'll be able to negotiate for that so and uh, if working backwards uh, the uncertainty about that um, could itself have quite a big impact on us and probably already is yeah uh, you know ba- based on the commentary from you know people working in the big institutions that you know pension funds and other um, big as- asset portfolio managers um mm. You know, probably beginning to worry about that uncertainty and whether 
uh, you know, there might be a bit of a run on the UK. Uh, certainly, it's conceivable. I imagine round about um, referendum day, the Bank of England will be, you know, staying up late watching the screens closely to check there isn't a, oh, uh, a scramble. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> over a longer period, it might be that um, the companies that would normally be making foreign direct direct investment into the UK will will not until they it, it becomes a bit clearer what agreements we manage to strike what the political situation is when it settles down because you know that leaving will be a huge convulsion for the conservative party and for labor too so what yeah who would be in power what what would, what would they try and take for the british people and what would they be able to negotiate so it uh, could end up being all sorts of mess. Yeah. And ma- mainly for that reason. I mean, I should get my cards on the table here, really. Mainly for that reason, the uncertainty. I'm, I'm very much against uh, leaving. Yeah. But yeah. It seems like um, quite a big gamble with uh, very, um, not, not, you know, nothing to gain by it, really. Yeah. Uh, I've really tried to wrap my head around it. And I, seen so many so many pieces that say we don't know what would happen this could be terrible it could be chaotic it might not be but we just don't know so why risk it um you know it feels like sort of pascal's wager of uh, indeed absolutely that's a fantastic way of um describing it with the world stocks diving last week and all this little bit of uncertainty would it be better to hide our money in a mattress or bury it in the garden at the moment those are the only two options I've got. <laughs> no, you can add more options if you like. It's kind of, it, would it be a waterproof container in the garden? Or just... <laughs> You've thought this through already, haven't you? <laughs> no, definitely don't. Uh, don't take it out of your bank. No need. Thanks to Tony for taking the time to speak to me. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Yates, and that's with a zero instead of the O because he's good with the numbers. Or you can check out his economics blog at longandvariable.wordpress.com. I'm looking to interview at least one expert on a topical subject per show. So if you work in a sector that's in the news or are affected by current policies, or if you're hugely knowledgeable about a political subject and can explain it clearly to an idiot like me, then please get in touch via our Twitter at parpolbro or our email partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. I'm especially looking for anyone who understands Europe at the moment. And I don't just mean, oh, I've listened to the final countdown loads. That doesn't count. Go away. If anyone had asked me why Labour lost the 2015 election, I'd probably have said, oh, it's due to a lack of votes. However, it turns out that thanks to Dame Margaret Beckett's report, the party can really look into what it was they did wrong. Apart from, you know, having a leader who constantly looked like he'd accidentally put on underwear three sizes too small for him, but was making do. Part of Beckett's report did say that people didn't see Ed Miliband as Prime Ministerial, which isn't surprising when the press spent so long telling us that he wasn't and that he couldn't even eat a sandwich. It also wasn't helped by him regularly making comments like, When I see a white van, I see respect. Who says or thinks that? I mean, when I see a white van, I think there's a git who's probably going to cut me up at the lights. The report also states that the party failed to shake off the myth that they ruined the economy. The odd thing about that was how even Mervyn King, the former head of the Bank of England, and at some point a couple of Conservative MPs stated that it was a global crash, but Labour didn't seem to refute it themselves. 
Perhaps it was an ill-conceived idea that by taking the blame for a global crash, it made them seem pretty damn powerful. Or maybe, like Boris Johnson did with the Olympics or George Osborne with economical growth, they thought it seemed really clever to take credit for something that they didn't have much to do with. The report also states that Labour was too left-wing, which you probably remember, what with their anti-immigration mugs and all their supporting of benefit caps. An unpublished report into Labour's loss was also revealed today, called Emerging from the Darkness, which sounds like a bit like a documentary into the Chilean miners. It said a lot of the same as Beckett's report, but added that Labour needs to be more for me, not just down and outs which is pretty tough for anyone who is a down and out but would like Labour to be for them too. So, what to learn from all this? Well, Beckett states Labour will struggle to win in 2020 due to an increase in voters over 65. And, of course, the Conservatives plan to reduce boundaries, which will change the number of MPs from 650 to 600, hitting Labour the hardest. So, the advice is, target the middle class, those who are uncertain about voting Tory again, and the over 65s. You know, that sounds sensible, doesn't it? Rather than, for example, try and target those who were sick that there was no real difference between the two main parties or the 35% who didn't bother voting at all. Still, I guess maybe none of that will matter in the end. Really hope Corbyn's been practising eating sandwiches. That's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thanks loads for listening and subscribing, and we're going to be back next week, unless by some miracle everything ever gets fixed in the next seven days. Although even then, I bet there'd still be a show that we could do, just based on all the politicians trying to claim it was their policy that fixed it. Once again, please subscribe, do spread the word, and rate us on iTunes if you get the chance. And if you do have any comments, thoughts or just general abuse that you'd like to send us, fire it over to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. We're very, very democratic like that. You can follow us on Twitter at parpolbro or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash parpolbro. This week's episode has been brought to you by the letters EU and various unsubstantiated numbers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.